Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. On this episode, we discuss The Last Samurai. Released in 2003, directed by Edward Zwick, written by John Logan, Edward Zwick, and Marshall Hoskovitz. Hello, hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. And this is James. And we're doing a movie that I have loved for almost two decades now, The Last Samurai. I've been obsessed with this movie since I first saw it. We saw it in theaters when we were kids, but it's one of those movies that, like, you know, I have always put on, like, when I want to watch something great or just have a good time. And, you know, it's it's a long watch. It's like two hours and 40 minutes, but I could watch a five-hour version of this movie. And this movie, I think, is a perfect film. Whether you're talking about cinematography, acting, uh, filmmaking, story, themes, action. I mean, it's got everything you want. It has romance. It's a really compelling story. And it's also based in history, which is something that I really love. And I think this is this was made at a time where I, a really specific time of movie making that I really love. And movies like this came out, Gladiator came out, these big epic historical dramas were really with really sweeping stories uh they were going all over like um uh, what's the Ridley Scott um Kingdom of Heaven mm-hmm. um so there were a lot of these movies that I love historical fiction and this is hands down one of the best ones of that era and Zwick is a great director when it comes to taking a historical story and putting it on the big screen for Hollywood and for audiences worldwide because he did a great job with Glory which is the film that stars Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington which is what he won his first Oscar for his best supporting actor which is about the first black regiment in the Civil War army so he also did Blood Diamond yeah so he's he's great at adapting stories for different cultures and this film it follows an American military advisor played by Tom Cruise who embraces the same Samurai culture he was hired to destroy after he was captured in battle. It got four Oscar nominations, including a Best Supporting Actor nomination for Ken Watanabe, who was fantastic in this movie. Art direction, sound design, costume design. On a budget of $140 million, it grossed $454 million worldwide. It's rated 7.7 on IMDb. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 66% fresh score from uh, from critics and 83, 83% from audiences. And I think audiences know what's up with this film. And it has a 56 on Metacritic, mm-hmm. which is really, it's basically rotten on Metacritic. And this movie, it deserves a lot more praise than it got and has gotten. I think that fans of the movie understand how good it is. But I think that this movie, maybe audiences didn't understand what was going on. I think maybe critics didn't appreciate Tom Cruise as a serious actor possibly because a lot of the, he was a serious actor in the but, 90s yeah but a lot of big a lot of the reviews i read were like people were talking about how like it the mega star and like this movie could, was just all about the star and i think that people were got distracted by tom cruise in the role even though i think it's his best performance i think he's absolutely fantastic and this is his, his best acting for sure but I, I think also people thought the story might have been too sensationalized because it seems like it's unrealistic and yes it's true there was no you know, American man who became, who joined the samurai and helped um, part of this, and was a part of this rebellion. That's fiction, but this entire movie is based on real events. It's based on real things that happened in Japan um, with the this last uh, large group of samurai warriors who were actually led by a real samurai named Saigo Takamori. Yeah, and Takamori, um, he inspired uh, Katsumoto's character, Ken Watanabe's character in this movie, and he actually did uh, lead this group of samurai against the emperor, against the army, and I think a lot of people maybe 
felt like because it's in a movie, it, it was unrealistic. But they really did fight this army that had heavy artillery. And they even did charge the heavy machinery, machine guns to the last man on horseback. And they were all slaughtered. So these things really happened. So I think that maybe people, people when they saw it, they're like, oh, that didn't happen. But unre- it's unbelievably true, though. And I think it's actually a few other things as well as in terms of it not being critically beloved to the point of like an 80, 90 percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which who cares about RT anymore? But um, but it's not even an eight IMDb. Yeah, I think the pacing is a little slow for some people. We love slow paced films, especially when the characters are are sensational and in the script, which is so well written in this film, it just breezes by for me personally. So I think a two two hour and 40 minute movie. There are great action sequences in this movie, but they're kind of few and far between, especially the first big action sequence is when they go and face the samurai for the first time. Then after that, it's about like an hour before they start fighting again. There's, that's when he's in in his captivity at the, at the village. But also I think that there's a huge misconception with this film, which I, I'm sure a lot of critics felt that when they saw it, is I think people think this is a white savior film. In The Last Samurai, it's not an appropriation of culture. It's not a whitewashing film. It's not about a white man coming to save the day. Nathan Algren doesn't save anyone. He doesn't save the day. He simply is a passenger of the inevitability of what the samurai uh, clan is doing. And really, I think a lot of people think that Algren is the last samurai and Tom Cruise is the last samurai. I think they get upset about that, but it's not. If you watch the movie, Ken Watanabe, his character Katsumoto, he is the last samurai. You could say his clan is the last samurai. The clan is. The the title is actually um, plural. plural. So that group of samurai... Technically, that's what the title refers to, them being the last samurai. And I think you're totally right. I think that it gets the, the same kind of misconception where Dances with Wolves, a lot of people look at that movie as like a white savior kind of movie. But if you watch the movie, just like this movie, it is about uh, one a character who used to hate this kind of opposing cultures and hate other people. And in terms of Algren, this character in The Last Samurai, he used to murder and slaughter Native Americans in America. And so he was a... a, a and so he was a, a terrible villain in the army of, of the Americas. And it's about this character going through this incredible transformation of spirituality, of individuality, of, of coming to peace with his life and understanding and, and learning from this new culture where he used to oppress any kind of emotion, he used to oppress uh, a- accepting others and empathizing with others. And now this movie has this beautiful story of this man uh, transforming and resurrecting into a new person and and joining this culture, joining this band, joining this clan, not to save it, not to be the hero, but to just fight alongside these men and live alongside these men, women, and children in the village. Katsumoto is the hero of the film. Nathan Algren does very heroic things, but Katsumoto is the protagonist of the story and the samurai. Well, well, Nathan's the protagonist of the story. Well, I mean, but, but in terms but of the overarching, the, goal, the, the larger story, the goal yeah. of the samurai. Yeah. Katsumoto is the leader. And The Last Samurai, it's really a celebration of traditional Japanese culture. You know, this Western man embraces this culture and he becomes a part of it. He chooses to follow the direction of the samurai and this traditional way of life and the way of the warrior and the peacefulness and the intense discipline that these people have. And he uses it and it it changes his life and he's able to reflect on his past and, and move on from his past because Nathan Algren is very much plagued by the shameful things he did in America against the indigenous peoples there. Yeah, and he is a a horrible alcoholic, and you see that from the first act of the film where every chance he gets, he's just swigging down alcohol, whether it be during his performance or at the dinner with the Japanese um, general and ambassador. Uh, He escapes into the bottle, and he's not... At first, you just think he's a sad drunk, like, oh, there's that guy who's just like that, that drunk that 
he's he's got he's just like a, a bum but in reality he drinks to to forget what he's done to forget the memories of his past and the horrible war crimes he committed especially a particular event where he and his men along with uh, or, under orders of Colonel Bagley uh, slaughtered men women and children of an innocent village of an indig indigenous tribe and he is haunted by these memories and by the heinous acts that he himself committed and this shows this is not whitewashing this is not showing that uh, the white American man is is a hero they are very truthful to, to how uh, horrible many indigenous people were treated by the Americans, especially the American armies. And uh, Algren represents that. And he, he escapes into the bottle. And he, by entering this new tribe, by entering this new culture of the samurai, he learns to deal with his guilt and embrace his guilt and accept what he's done. And uh, he is able to turn away from the drink which is a, a great transformation for his character. And, and the samurai teach him a new way of living and dealing with his past. Because Katsumoto says this great line because Nathan says he, he, has, he, he knows that Nathan's having horrible nightmares because Taka is telling him. And he says that only warriors who are ashamed of what they've done have nightmares. Well, because Nathan says every soldier has nightmares, and Katsumoto yeah. says only soldiers who are shameful of their past. Right? Exactly. And, yeah, so Algren... He needs the samurai, and they help save his life. And again, this we be, we believe this film is about a celebration of the Japanese culture. But before we continue, if you want to support Razor of Lost Podcast, the best thing you can do is share us with your family and friends and to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Patrons get perks like personalized videos, podcast schedules. Top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast. And the best perk of all, every single patron, no matter if you're in the $2, $5, or $10 tier, you alone have access to our weekly bonus episodes of the show that we post every Tuesday on Patreon. Head on over to our website, RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, our custom movie posters. Follow, subscribe wherever you're listening. Hit those notification bells. And thank you for tuning in around the world. And now, like I said earlier, I think that this is Tom Cruise's best performance. And this is at a point of his career where um, it was before he was doing – before it, Mission Impossible was uh, – kind of stalled out a little bit and mission impossible three wouldn't be for another i think five years or so and i think that in this movie he showed how talented of an actor he was because he was nominated for magnolia after this came out um, for paul thomas anderson's film but with this film i think that he really embodied the character showed us something different and showed just the, the immense range he has as an actor and i think that his work with stanley kubrick really transformed his acting career because he was in Eyes Wide Shut before this. And Eyes Wide Shut, um, being a Stanley Kubrick movie, shot for a very long time. They filmed for over a year. And Tom Cruise spent a year filming that movie, like acting in scenes. And so I think that f after he did Eyes Wide Shut and went through that experience of that intense acting with Stanley Kubrick over so long a period of time, I think that that really changed his performing and changed his, um, his talent level. I think that he really upped his, his skill game in terms of dramatic acting after that movie. And then from then on, this is the first example of how powerful of an actor he can be. I like to think also, yeah, that's a great point, but from Tom Cruise being such a hardworking person and he puts so much into each of his roles, lots of preparation, lots of research, I think that also researching the samurai for so long and kind of embracing the culture, not just Algren, the character, but also maybe Tom Cruise himself embraced the samurai codes in terms of the strong, intense discipline. And the day, the more, the second you wake up in the morning, you are 
having that intense discipline towards the mastery of whatever you go for that task for the day. So you're you're just focused so intently on these tasks. And I can see Tom Cruise embracing the Japanese samurai culture and putting that into his performance and maybe that's having an impact on his life in terms of not just the career and acting and role of, of Algren, but in his future. Because it seems like after this movie, he kind of just took a turn and was like the biggest movie star again, even though he was a huge star, but... Now he's literally solidified him as himself as possibly the biggest movie star of all time. Yeah, there's definitely an argument you can make. And I think you're right about the work ethic because he spent two years preparing for this movie, not just growing the hair and the beard. Like <laughs> he, uh, he trained for Japanese swordplay instruction. He spent nine months training, and he also um, spent uh, almost a year learning Japanese. And he gained 20 pounds of muscle to, um, to prepare for this role because um, it's, it's, the stunt action sequences are not just... It's not just the, the performing of the stunts, but um, swords are pretty heavy, especially if you're using them all day. Um, th these things can really take a toll on your body, as well as the body armor that they wear in these films. You have to have a great, strong core and uh, have a, a little, a good amount of muscle on your body to be able to withstand 14-hour shooting days with these set pieces and doing all these action stunt set pieces with all this armor on. So he had to gain muscle for that purpose. Yeah, so Tom Cruise, again, fantastic role and performance in this movie, but also Ken Watanabe as Katsumoto, again, Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. What a performance this only marks... This marks not only the first time that Ken Watanabe starred in an American-made movie, but it is the first time he spoke English in a movie as well. And then obviously right after this, he did Batman Begins, and he was Ra's al Ghul's double. And, and I think, oh, sorry. And he's a very complex character. You know, Katsumoto, he's he's leading a rebellion against the Emperor's men because what's happening is we have this main theme throughout the film of modernization and, you know, changing from Eastern traditional values and culture from Japan now wanting to modernize and embracing Western culture. And so the emperor, who's basically a boy in this film, he's he's bringing in all these experts from around the world in in, that are Western taught and Western raised in terms of every industry, whether it's technology or or architecture or, or farming, irrigation, whatever it is, he's bringing all the experts from the Western world and he's modernizing Japan. But Katsumoto's character his motivation is to try to convince the emperor to not forget the old ways, not forget traditional Japanese culture, not to completely lose ourselves and forget who we are in Western culture. And that's really the entire point of his rebellion. And, you know, halfway through the film, Katsumoto realizes there's no way we can defeat this modernized army, these new weapons, these these machine guns. But it's part of my duty as the leader of the samurai to show the emperor because even though I'm rebelling against him and, and opposing his forces, I still devote myself to the Emperor of Japan. I'm still his loyal servant, but it's my duty, and I believe it's my service, to show the Emperor that my death will show that not to forget about what we were. And we actually talked about a similar topic with the anime episode on our last episode and, and the, the struggle in Japan within the populace of um, the struggle between their historical spiritual past and the intense spirituality they had in their history uh, and coming to terms with that opposed with technology and and how advanced it's becoming and how much it's overtaking everyone's lives especially the younger generation so it's something that i think is still this kind of culture war within the people itself is still prevalent to this day so this movie is still very relevant to what's going on and and ken watanabe I think that he should have won the Oscar for this. He's absolutely fantastic in this movie. And Chris Nolan obviously used him to great effect in Batman Begins, but then in Inception as well. I think that, you know, great directors recognize great actors. And, and Ken, I think, knocked this role out of the park. He is infectious. He's charming. He's wise. He 
He seems like a, a natural born leader. And yet he he has this uh, amazing quality to make the camera love him, to make the audience love him. It's a character that you would love to follow more. And like, I, I would love to see a movie of his on his own. You know what I mean? That's how much you like him. And he's as eloquent and wise as he is fierce. And he's like a tiger just waiting to pounce. And I love the way he, that Ken does it with his body language to show this characteristic characteristic of Katsumoto like he'll be in an intense stare looking at the character listening to Algren then he'll just immediately turn away and just run away from the camera you but know he turns he... his neck first but always you, but you don't know where he went he's like a dragon in a way it's yeah. really cool that he like kind of brought this animalistic ferocious element to the character of Katsumoto and in this film Japan is westernizing like we just talked about and they're doing it under the guise of national harmony and so they're trying to what they say is bring peace to their entire country with like basically one new set of ideas but i love how like we talk about they don't sh they don't shy away from the atrocities against the indigenous people of america in this film but also they show the the westernizing of a country like Japan and the, its effects that it has on its citizens like when they're placing the train tracks down and we see the displacement of people and, and houses being burned down in there their villages being burned to the ground just to make way for this train track and the the delegates and and especially Amora who is basically the emperor's main advisor he's all for and he's kind of leading the direction of this new modernization of Japan he's the villain of the movie he, yeah, yeah he's probably the the antagonist of the film yeah. you could say and also Bagley as well yeah but Omura is too much in the Emperor's ear and the Emperor is so young and naive and inexperienced with his decision-making he's literally a child you know and, and he says that I think he says that Katsumoto used to be his teacher. You know, he's Katsumoto's also part of the council, but it seems that he stopped listening to Katsumoto long ago because he's trying and envisioning this new future for Japan because yes, they're they want to modernize, but they're doing it because they need to compete in this new social and economic landscape of the industrial revolution and across it, the world. And it's something that obviously it's destroying the the history of the country, but it's a necessity, especially during the industrial revolution. Uh, if Japan didn't modernize and and westernized in some capacity, they would have been um, considered like a third world country in terms of their technology. And they probably would have been taken over yeah, by another country. They, they could have easily been taken over. So the emperor is acting in the best interests of the country as a whole. But although uh, Katsumoto is trying to obviously harken back to we need to we can't change who we are. So I think that by the end of the film, the resolution that he understands is we can change, but also we can't forget who we are or where we come from. So we need to kind of find a balance between westernizing and industrializing, but also remembering our roots and our spirituality and our connection to nature as well. So obviously the entire story, Katsumoto's sacrifice and also the sacrifice of the other samurais is what leads him to that decision by the end of the film. And my favorite image representing this changing and clashing of cultures is a little past the halfway point in this film when when uh, Nathan is returning to uh, Tokyo and Katsumoto is with his samurai and he's going to meet the emperor. Uh, they drop him off in town and you see this this really great shot where when we first saw a similar image in the opening of the film, it's just a bunch of houses and, and shacks and, and storefronts and you see their roofs and that beautiful Japanese architecture with the curved roofs and just trees in the sky and that's what you saw but now it's after the winter and industrialization has been taken over now you see a similar image with the roofs in their trees but there are t dozens of telephone poles leading into the distance with hundreds of wires leading out so it's a it's a, a great image to show how japan 
how quickly it was changing and how fast it happened from when Nathan was captured to when he was released. Which is just about a year's worth of time, basically. And the main plot of the film is Nathan Algren is basically this wayward former soldier who, when we meet him, he's basically a drunken mess. And all he does is he's basically lost without war. He's lost without a battle. That's his purpose is to be a warrior. And he's he's reenacting and doing theatrical performances of his exploits on the indigenous people in America. And he's obviously then tasked to help train an army for Japan to stop Katsumoto's rebellion against the emperor. And so basically he's tasked then to train these officers, these people who are basically farmers, never picked up a weapon in their life to try to take on samurai whose entire occupation for the last 2000 years has been war. And this is something that really happened. It wasn't Americans that trained the Japanese army. It was Prussians. But obviously, you can't make this movie with a Prussian lead actor. You need to have Tom Cruise in it. Yeah. You need to have it's a, it's a being released wide in America. It needs to have an American lead. So they just embellished that part, having an American expert of warfare training the army. But it was actually Prussian armies, uh, uh, commanders and experts in war who trained these armies. And but they are accurate in terms of uh, the weapons and the the rifles that these Japanese soldiers are using in the first act of the movie are actually Prussian-made rifles, so that's accurate. And then, at, which also happened when Nathan returns after that year, the weaponry is much more advanced, and that also happened. They they excelled in terms of the industrialization of what they had in the army artillery, and they became an unstoppable force towards the ja- the samurai. And Nathan's such an interesting character because. Again, we've talked about the shame that he has, but he's so similar to Katsumoto because both are warriors, but one has lost his honor, whereas the other one has great honor for himself and his practices. And Algren has this odd quality where he seems to have a death wish, but at the same time, and he's not afraid to die, but at the same time, he doesn't want to die. It's kind of odd where, you know, he's he has that soldier try to shoot him to prove that the soldiers aren't ready to go in combat against the samurai but also he has a survival instinct at all times to always fight to the last breath and never give up so it's kind of an odd back and forth that he has in his psyche where you can tell part of him just wants to die and just never live again and because of his past but also he wants to keep fighting it's like he's looking for something to save him from his his bottomless bottle exactly and i think it's a great point where you said he he's a he's a born warrior and when he's not in battle he kind of doesn't know what to do with himself. So I think that's a great point where he does have this death wish, but when he's on the battlefield, he will kill as many people as he possibly can and do whatever he can to save his own life. So it's a great contrast of like this feuding duality within the character. And since America doesn't have a great war at this time, he's like, I guess the only job I'm fit for is to be hired to suppress yet another rebellion for a emerging modern war par- war party. And I... I I've always been fascinated with samurai. I've always been fascinated with the history and, and you know, the intense discipline and spirituality and, and how revered these warriors were. They're some of the, the greatest warriors in the history of mankind. Definitely. And But but it, this movie does take a, a certain angle towards samurai. So not all samurai were like this. Some samurai, you know, were more villainous. There were different factions of samurai. And, you know, there are actually different, like, families of samurai. And not all samurai were united. They were... They were often opposing forces, and there were battles between different samurai um, clans, and and many samurai were even hired as mercenaries for hire. So uh, not every samurai was a super spiritual, um, like like the people in this village 
not exactly to the T, but, you know, the samurai culture was a lot more complex than, you know, a, a Hollywood movie gives it justice. But I think they did a great job of capturing what a certain kind of clan would be like, whereas clans were like this, but not all clans were like this. Yeah, samurai were a hereditary military nobility. They came into relevance in the 12th century, and they're, they're warriors who are also referred to as bushi, bushi, which means warrior, and the traditional samurai code of honor, discipline, and morality are known as bushido, meaning the way of the warrior, which is the main theme of the film and was followed by each samurai until their dying breath. And the samurai warriors were on top of the social caste system in Japan at this time. They were fierce warriors, very skilled in sword fighting, but also uh, bows and arrows and other forms and methods of, of instruments of death. But the most famous weapon used obviously was the katana, which is very sharp and a slightly curved blade. Many samurai also used the bows called yumi. And the fighting spirit and code of honor followed by the samurai were what made them legendary. The samurai ruled over Japan for over 700 years until the time this film takes place, 1876 to 1877, was when they were beginning the rebellion and then lost to the emperor of Japan. Amazing. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for that. Yeah, of course. And, you know, uh, Japan has gone through turbulent histories. Like, feudal Japan was a time where, you know, different tribes were warring with each other. And, and there was always this, there's a, a longstanding history of people fighting for power in Japan. And they weren't always united and they didn't always have one leader. And, and different uh, regions wanted control of the entire country. And so it has a tumultuous history. And the samurai were a part of that for sure. It's, you could say it's like two justice systems that could never agree on one system. And they're always going against each other, you could say, in a way. Yeah, but I think uh, people around the world are still to this day very much fascinated by the idea of samurai. Oh, absolutely. And speaking of Japanese culture, I think that Hans Zimmer did such an incredible job by showcasing the beautiful music and themes and instruments of Japan in his score. It's one of my favorite soundtracks to listen to. It's beautiful at times. It's, you know, that rambunctious battle scenes. It's epic. It's, it's It just makes your hair stand up. The the themes and the songs he came up with is like like the Red Warrior, that track is sick, and Spectrus in the Fog, so <laughs> many good tracks. Yeah, and this is likewise one of my favorite scores. And the thing with Hans Zimmer, and we've talked about him plenty on this show, is even if he's making films that are based in other cultures, what makes him so great as a composer and a writer of music is that he is so authentic and open to uh, using the instruments of that time, using the styles of music of that uh, that place and whatever era it is, uh, whether it be something like Sherlock and using gypsy music or something like this where he's using real historical Japanese music, real instruments. and Yeah, and like in Wonder Woman, he went to Thermosera to actually record instruments <laughs> yeah, used yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's special instruments there. <laughs> but it, I, I read that even Japanese critics and film lovers and, and musicians were uh, very surprised with how accurate he was to depicting the style of music that Japanese hist historically had. And so, once again, he proves himself to be one of the greatest musical composers of all time and uh, my favorite composer of all time. And let's talk about some more characters, and then I want to dive into the main plot of the film because there's so much more to talk about. Let's this dive right film in, man. is so epic. And so besides Nathan Algren, his buddy Zebulon Gant is kind of like an old army butt of his, and he takes him, and Algren takes him with him, and he's the one who approaches Algren about the, the, the deal and the job to go work in Japan to train this army. And then we have Colonel Bagley, who is just 
a despicable character in every way. He's the one, the colonel, who led the attack on the indigenous tribe that Algren tried to say that had nothing to do with the ambush. Um, you can assume that happened to the American troops in America. So Colonel Bagley is just one of the reprehensible loathsome characters you'll see in a film and but he's necessary in a film like this especially because there are people like that there's still people like that today necessary evil but i love how algren kills him at the end of the film he just throws a sword through his chest yeah. off horseback it's pretty epic i'll likely kill you for free and then uh timothy spall he plays simon graham and so he's famous for playing peter pettigrew and harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban in the other films couldn't be more different of a character but he had a great couple of years because yeah. this was right around the same time in 2003 but he plays simon graham who's basically a linguist and translator for americans and japanese in this era in this time and also a photographer and then we have again we Amura we talked about was played by masato harada and omura is a villainous character for sure he's the one that has most um, link, most control over the emperor's decisions, most inside of his ear, whispering to him what to do. And he wants to fully embrace Western culture and Western industrialization in Japan. And he wants to not only crush the samurai in Katsumoto, but other people who don't embrace this new culture. So he's very authoritarian in a way. Mm -hmm. And then let's get into the main plot. So basically... Uh, Algren trains up these farmers and they're not ready. Like we talked about, he shows that they're not ready with the guy who tries to shoot him. But Amora and the Japanese government have had enough. They want to go attack, attack Katsumoto, uh, Katsumoto because <laughs> yeah. Katsumoto had just attacked one of their train tracks and they need the train tracks open for resources and transportation. And so Algren leads his unprepared men into the first attack and battle with the samurai and the directing cinematography and just tension built by Zwick in this sequence of the first battle of the samurai is just so epic and just when you can hear them in the distance screaming yeah. and the, the, everyone's terrified about what's to come and then you see the samurai charging on horseback in their giant war attire and uniforms and armor with the with their demonic heads and, and animal like like protrusions off their shields and everything it's epic yeah, and the smog, it, it looks so great. It's fantastic cinematography, but also it's important to mention the opening of the film where Katsumoto is um, meditating and he experiences this vision of a group of his samurai warriors battling uh, a white tiger that is putting up a fight um, surrounded by his men. And this is important because, and what I love about this movie is it does not have too much exposition. It does not hold your hand telling the story just shows you what's going on doesn't tell you too much which i really like and this it pertains to uh, nathan algren because during the battle which like you said is fantastic it's it's intense it's got great gore it's got great sword fighting and like i mean who who doesn't love samurai fighting i mean it's a it's, massacre yeah it's so much fun and then also but at the end of the battle nathan is surrounded by several samurai warriors and he has this spear that and he's fighting these men off and he has uh, attached to the spear, the spear there is this small banner with a white tiger on it, and Katsumoto he sees this and he is compelled by the image because it, it is a recreation for what he saw in his vision of the tiger fighting the men, and then he sees that it is actually this white man, this American man fighting these men, and this is what motivates Katsumoto to spare Nathan and to to bring him to the village because of this vision he had because he's someone who believes in fate. He's someone who believes in destiny. He's a very spiritual being. 
And so he thinks that nothing happens by accident and everything happens for a reason. Hence why um, Taka's husband, after she goes to Katsumoto because she's not happy that Nathan's living in her home and, and she's obviously misses her husband, Katsumoto tells her it was destiny. He tried to kill the, the American, so it was meant to be. Like, karma. Yeah, it's karma. And so this is what fuels Katsumoto's motivation to bring Nathan to the village. And what I love about the battle, besides the fantastic action, is when you watch it and you listen to the music by Hans Zimmer, the heroic themes are for the samurai. Yeah. The samurai come bashing in. It's the dun, 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 dun. It's the samurai are the heroes of the movie, of the of the scene, of this battle. Even though Algren is, you think, the hero of the film, the samurai come in and mess everybody up. And it's it's a great se- it's a great action sequence, but it's really just a taste of what's to come. And like you said, uh, Algren defeats the Red Warrior, who thinks it'll be an easy kill, but ends up being a good death for Nathan Algren, and is another reason why Katsumoto, you can assume, spared Algren. And I think that, like you said, it is a long movie, and a lot of people, if they aren't huge fans of it, they think it's slow. But I think it's a, a perfect movie, and it's, it's really perfect storytelling, because this is the the big moment where at the end of the first act, and this is where everything changes for our character. Uh, the, the second act should um, put your character into a place where they are in unfamiliar territory and challenge them. And this is a perfect example of a fish out of water. He's somewhere where he's not meant to be and somewhere he doesn't understand. And this place is going to challenge him. First of all, it's going to challenge him by forcing him to go through withdrawal over not having alcohol anymore. And it's a great sequence of him dealing with the withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. Especially when he gets the sake and he's just chugging it. And then you can see Taka and her brother just staring at him in, in you know, concern over him chugging sake and screaming and having those nightmares. But I love, love when... Um, Nathan gets to the samurai village and you get to see this culture and how different it is than the westernized Tokyo and how much bigger it is than you would think about a samurai community and it's actually you know they're very large and Katsumoto we learn is basically samurai nobility his forefathers and his family have ruled over this area for a thousand years so it's up to him to keep leading in a way he's kind of like a, a king a king to these people you know he's kind of like his own mini emperor to them yeah his family built the temple Yes, my family built this temple a thousand years, <laughs> a thousand years ago. ago. And but it, it's great to watch Nathan go through his transformation of healing and then trying to understand where he is. And like you said, he's staying at Taka's house, who is the Red Warrior's wife. And it's an awkward situation at first because it's this, this sort of respect that the samurai have for each other where even though this man killed my husband, it's part of the code where I show him respect and I show him honor by letting him stay here, taking care of him, also because Katsumoto, my brother, told me to do it. Yeah. But also, it, it's it's a sign of respect, which is maybe the biggest and most important characteristic that samurai have besides honor is also respect for each other. And, and Nathan, the time he spends in the village is so important to his character because he's never, it, like he says in his diary, he, this is the longest he's spent in one place since he left home when he was 17. And so he spends close to a year here. And it's what really transforms from the people, how they live their lives, how how the village operates. And, and he's he's so used to war and he's so used to death and to be surrounded by people who have intense discipline about whatever craft they have, uh, have uh, honor and, and respect each other. And he's never been surrounded by this kind of these kind of themes and th- these kinds of ideas before. And I think he really is attracted to it immediately because that first walk he takes around the village after he's um, gotten over his withdrawal from alcohol and he's he's walking through the village, he, he's, he's looking at it as though he, it's the most amazing thing he's ever seen in his life. 
And that's, it, I think it's a, a powerful area, and it's what causes the transformation of him, that and the people he encounters. And also the shame that he has from his past where the word savages is used a few times in this film, and it's when characters refer to the indigenous peoples in America and also other characters referring to the samurai. And basically what they're referring to is people who just don't have modern technology, which is a very unfair assessment of somebody and very uh, offensive thing to say. Just because they don't have machine guns and, and weapons like you doesn't mean that they are savages. They have their own particular way of life, which they have been living for thousands and thousands of years. And it didn't have an, they didn't have a necessity to modernize their culture until now with the Industrial Revolution happening across the world. But Nathan, I think because of what he's done to the indigenous peoples of America, he's embracing this non-modern culture of the samurai. And he's learning about it. He loves it. He's becoming a part of it. And he he's he's learning what does it mean to be a samurai in terms of the devotion, the mastery of, of tasks, the discipline, and the devotion to perfection of whatever they pursue. And he says in his diary that he's never seen such discipline from people. And the word samurai itself means to serve. And again, Katsumoto believes that he serves the emperor despite the fact that he's going against his forces and he begins to wear their clothing and he's learning how to fight with the sword and he's the learning katana. language he's learning the language too and he, he, he they even talk about how he's kind of a, he's a very intelligent person but also a linguist himself because he speaks some of the tongue of the indigenous people in America as well and Katsumoto believes that Algren is there for a reason, which is why he's having Taka take care of him. And it has something to do with his vision. And also, he wants to learn about his enemy and learn from them. Yeah, and I, I think also living in a home where there is a family, especially a, 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 a mother and children, I think opens up a new chapter inside of his psyche where I don't think he's ever been exposed to that his entire life. And so I think that signals a major transformation, being around the kids, being around Taka, and just you know, having dinners with them, them teaching them the, him the language, uh, him having fun with the kids. These are all things that it's there's such human things that he's never encountered because he's been a soldier all his life since he's been adult, been an adult. So mm -hmm. he's never had these kinds of moments in his life to really understand other people and empathize with other people and, and grow to love other people and develop like real relationships. That's something he's never had. And because he's not drinking anymore, he can develop those relationships. And like not even just with Taka and her children, which are all very touching. And he grows a very strong bond with the young son, but also with Bob, his bodyguard and protector, who's always following <laughs> around. You ladies man, Bob. And then also Algren, he's really also trying to earn the respect of the other samurai. Katsumoto is a very honorable man. He respects even his enemies. It's, it's a very strong character trait of him that he has but then we have the character of Ujio who's played by our buddy what's his name um, oh, I, I didn't uh, write down Hiroki Sanada he's awesome who's in a ton of movies yeah. and um, so Ujio he despises Algren when he comes. He's the one that wants to kill Algren, Algren every day he wakes up, and he's the one that fights Algren with the sword, with the wooden swords. And I love the scene in the rain when I love that scene. Algren goes to have fun and fight in with the wooden swords with the young son. And I, I love the look on Algren's face because he's in shock, kind of, of how strong the children are and how ferocious they are as fighters. He's like, wow, this is a child that I'm fighting right now. And also, he, I think... Um, He's getting his anger out on Algren for killing his father. I yeah, think maybe. in that moment, he's in, I think he's really giving him everything he has and really attacking Nathan with every bit of energy and anger. I think it's a cathartic moment for the boy to attack the man who who took his father's life. And Ujo, he's the ultimate warrior. And 
he may be too passionate of a of a person to be an effective leader, like like Katsumoto. He's too hot headed. Yeah, yeah, he's like a lion just waiting to be unleashed and attack. Whatever. Somebody he get this hot head out of here. Sink his teeth into. I said no hot heads down here. Where's the Gotham DW? Where's the DWP Where's guy? The DWP, where's the DWP guy? This Dark Knight Rises quotes everybody. <laughs> But um, I love the scenes with Algren and Ujo, especially the water, the the rain scene where Ujo just beats the crap out of him with the wooden sword. But Algren won't stop giving up and getting up. And no matter how badly Ujo beats him, he keeps getting up and he won't let go. And like I said, he has that death wish, but also doesn't want to die at the same time. The survival instinct. It's like the movie. It's like in Matrix, Matrix Revolutions. When Smith keeps punching, knocking Neo out, he keeps getting up. He's like, "Why won't you die?" <laughs> it was inevitable. I was thinking more like Paul Newman in um, what's <laughs> cool it called? Hand cool Hand Luke, <laughs> when he just keeps getting the beat down, but he yeah. keeps getting up. But that's like an archetype of a typical hero in yeah, Hollywood. But also, scene, yeah. it it's starting to grow respect for Ujo to have for Algren, which eventually he does get respect for him when they have their second uh, battle against each other with the wooden samurai swords, where. Algren gets bested twice, but then they have a draw on the final contest, and then Ujo does his now does his nod and bow to Algren, which Algren returns. Yeah, I think Ujo, when he understands, I think the the first initial fight during that first battle, Algren shows his will to fight to the last breath. And yeah. Then, then when he when Ujo beats the crap out of him in the rain. His willingness to keep fighting, even when he can barely, he can't even stand up, but he still grabs the wooden sword again to, and just like slowly waves it around. He, I think Ujo is seeing the will to fight that he himself has. It's a samurai code. Yeah, exactly. And then when he finally earns his ability, he finally earns the respect by having that draw with him. And Ujo sees himself, I think, in Algren of seeing that 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 burning fire of a warrior within him. And I think that's what really draws him to them by the end of the film. And I really love the conversations that Algren and Katsumoto have because it's just, he's such a fascinating character to learn about. We learn he speaks very good English for being a samurai. He's the only one there that speaks English, really. His son does a little bit. Yeah, and it, it's it's great conversation they have. And I love when Katsumoto learns about General Custer and how Algren says that he was, he he's a maniac. He took like a... 300 men against like 2100 by himself and he cost all of his men his lives and Custom was like I like this General Custer and Thermopylae yeah and th the story yeah, of Thermopylae so they foreshadow the end battle of the 300 Spartan versus a million uh, Persians he's like a million do you know this number I understand this number Zack Snyder made that movie <laughs> <laughs> But again, Katsumoto believes Algren's there for a reason. He wants to know his enemy, but also they're developing this really beautiful friendship. But again, where I think they're both starting to learn that they're not very different from each other at all, despite having such different backgrounds. And I really love the relationship with Taka as well and how it slowly builds because the first major step, well, the, the first little step he does is actually a step when after he realizes he, he got mud in the house, then... I think it's the first signal of his transformation is the next time he goes into Taka's home, he makes sure to take his boots off and he walks barefoot. So I think that's the first step to um, Algren transforming and um, becoming a part of this culture and mm -hmm. this society. But the relationship is it, very romantic by the end of it, but it's not Hollywood romance. And they, you know, they, they don't have like a passionate makeout scene or a passionate intimate scene, which I think works best because... Uh, that's the great moment when Taka dresses him in her ex-husband, in her her dead husband's uniform, and his his um armor. armor. I think that is the equivalent of uh, a sex scene, that intimacy, 
and showing that she is embracing him as a man. Well, I think they're being fair and realistic to the traditional Japanese culture. Yeah. Of, you know, it's not America where people just throw themselves at each other like nothing. Exactly. And the first time that, well, also in, in terms of other things that he learns to show respect for the family and, and starting to embrace the culture in the house is where he's starting to learn the language on his own and they're all so surprised by it. But he's also, again, developing that really close bond with the young son. But I think Algren really shows where his loyalties begin to lie on the assassination attempt of Katsumoto, where they're, the village is having this really nice night where they have the puppet show going on, but then Katsumoto uh, ninjas or other samurai come to attack and kill him. But Algren puts his life on the line multiple times to save Katsumoto and also to save the young boy and everyone else in the village. That's such a great fight sequence. Mm -hmm. It's excellent. When and, him and Katsumoto, and, and Katsumoto are side by side. He's got two swords. Oh, man. Because Katsumoto so is a beast with the sword, too, and as Ken well. And Ken Watanabe's tall. He's he's really big, big guy. guy. Yeah. yeah. I, but I love that sequence. Yeah. Oh, let's let's head on into our intermission, pal. Let's go. And this intermission is actually brought to you by our friends at Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost for twenty percent off and free shipping worldwide. And you know, if I was ever kidnapped by samurais and brought to their village, I would hope to God that I had my landscaped. Lawn, my Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 groomer with me to make sure that I could keep everything trimmed up and looking good. And this brand new groomer is waterproof, skin safe, has a 7,000 RPM motor, has a wireless charger, built-in light. It's amazing, fellas. You gotta get a manscaped.com. Everyone listening, if you need to get a gift for the man in your life, you don't know what to get them, if they're hard to shop for, if um, you're trying to just get them an anniversary gift or a, a, a take-a-hint gift, go to manscaped.com. Get the Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer or hop on one of their Performance Package 4.0 bundles, which is a ton of products at a lower cost, which I also recommend. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Now let's head into our intermission. I'll begin with our movie quote competition. I have one for myself as well as one from our fan, and the fan is Griffin Hatcher. So this is his quote. Let's hear it, Griffin. Sometimes I don't. If I like a moment for me personally... I don't like to have the distraction of the camera. I just want to stay in it. Sean Penn in, what's that movie called? With Ben Stiller. Walter. Walter. Secret Life of Walter Mitty. There you go. Thanks. And then this one's for me. People do it every day. They talk to themselves. They see themselves as they'd like to be. They don't have the courage you have to just run with it. Tyler Durden. Yeah. My guy. My here's, guy. Here's mine. What is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria? A virus? An intestinal worm? An idea. Resilient. Highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate it. I'll give everyone a moment. <laughs> this is so good. This is early in the film, too. Yeah. This is Cobb, played by Leonardo DiCaprio in Inception. Good job. Thanks, man. All right. Guess this movie release year. A Few Good Men. Okay. A Few Good Men. Great Tom Cruise movie. We're going all Directed Tom Cruise. Directed by Rob Reiner. This was in 2001. Way off. Damn it. What was it? 1992. Oh, my that God. That might be the worst guess ever in the history of intermissions. No, you go, you're off this by is, 20 years once. But come on. This is Jack Nicholson when he wasn't super old yet. That's true. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was bad. Man, it was way <laughs> off. All right. Here's mine. <laughs> Not another teen movie. Let's see. When did Fantastic Four come out? That had to have been like 2000. 
2004 probably or maybe late no later i'm gonna go with 2004 2001 oh man is that early yeah wow. it's an old movie wow i guess it is because the fantastic four was probably like 2004 oh, i think four yeah that's yeah. what i think that is one of my favorite comedies oh dude it's hysterical it's so funny that movie is, is when she's when he she's painting and and he's like he's like you have your mother's eyes you, you know, <laughs> he looks at he's like you have her eyes <laughs> it's a stick figure painting of her mom but she's oh, like throwing paint yeah, on yeah, it, oh, like, yes, yeah. in the art class. She's like yeah, aggressively. <laughs> Janie Riggs. <laughs> Janie's got a gun. Janie's got a gun. <laughs> oh man! All right, movie pop quiz time. Oh, man. What was Stanley Kubrick's final film? Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, that was we talked about earlier. Yeah, he died before it was released too. He died two days after the final edit he made on it. That he showed it to yeah. the studio, yeah. and then he, it's so unfortunate. He was, he was kind of old. He was like probably close to 80. Yeah. And I think, you know, he's a long-term cigarette smoker and just super, you Un, know. Didn't seem like a healthy guy. He didn't seem like he slept ever yeah. because he worked <laughs> so much on his films. Yeah, it doesn't, he did not look like that, he That ever takes slept. his toll, but man, probably the greatest director to ever live. Definitely. All right, what do you got for movie pop quiz? What video game movie did Ken Watanabe star in? Co-star in. Video game movie? Yeah. Oh, what is this? It's a good one. Doom? Nope. He does bigger movies than that. Yeah, but that, that was a while ago. He was ago. doing Pirates during that when Dune came out. Ken Watanabe's he's not in Pirates. He was in At World's End. No, he's not. Who is it? It's not him. Oh. Who am I thinking of? Someone else. I don't think so. I think we've had this conversation before, and you always think it's Ken Watanabe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You're you're pretty you're a piece of work guy. <laughs> um <laughs> I don't know, what is it? Detective Pikachu. Oh man, you ah, oh, I forgot. Yeah, he plays the lieutenant. Yeah. Now he used to work with his father. Oh man. Yeah. So I don't know why my brain was just like, "All right, what's an old video game movie?" <laughs> All right, let's move on to our biggest hater of the week. I have one. I actually got into it with somebody on TikTok today. Oh, really? Because um, I didn't even see it. It was I'm not going to say their username because they don't deserve to be called out. But I we, we posted a clip on sharks from our episode of shark movies and we talked about how 100 million sharks are killed per year by humans versus 10 humans killed by a year per sharks. And um, a, pe- a lot of people in the comments are like, oh, that's cap, that's a lie, that's, that's a fake number, like there's no way 100 million sharks are killed. But I, I think that people really underestimate or don't understand how big the Earth is. It's impossibly ma- massive. Like when you actually look up how big it is, it's freaking huge. And the majority of the Earth is oceans. There are billions of sharks out there. There are over 500 species. And I mean, I, I put up another statistic to these commenters just to like give them a perspective of how many animals are killed per year just for human food consumption. And I wrote, I mean, humans kill 50 billion chickens per year. So how is it that far fetched? And people, this one guy, he wrote this guy. And I didn't say that, you know, people eat sharks at the grocery store every day. It's just a perspective number to say, you'd be surprised how many animals there are in the world that get killed every year by human beings. And he wrote, mate, I thought you were smart, but after reading your comment, I just can't think that anymore. Your comment completely lacks knowledge. And so the comment was just to bring to perspective how big the earth is and how much food is consumed. And and then he went off and we went back and forth. He's like, oh, the 100 million sharks number is BS. It's not real. And I, I cited National Geographic and I sent him links to like five or six articles and YouTube videos talking about it. I mean, I'll take National Geographic as a legitimate source if I don't know about you guys, but I mean 73 million sharks are just 
killed for their fins alone yeah. every year. It's a yeah, shark fin soup is a delicacy in China. But there are billions of shark and sharks in the ocean right now, over five hundred species. I think people just think that sharks are just the big great white sharks. So that, like there aren't yeah. a ton, but there are tons, and not only that, but some species of sharks they they lay up to a hundred pups at a time. That's a that's a hundred sharks just from one from one mother. And I think, it, again, it just ties to people don't really understand how massive the earth is, how big the ocean is. And also, they don't have perspective of just because we go to the grocery store, we have access to all this food. Can you imagine how much tuna fish fishing goes on every day to supply every single grocery store, convenience store, supermarket, restaurant with tuna fish, just canned tuna fish. I'm not talking about fresh salmon for all your sushi and all your grocery stores. I'm not talking about shrimp and lobster. Just canned tuna fish is an absurd amount of fishing every single day. There are probably tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe more fishing boats on the oceans every day fishing. Yeah. And there are probably millions of people that eat shark every day. So- It's it's nuts. It's like, the kid didn't even look it up. He's like, he's like, and I'm like, we're in this world where just because you think something's right, you don't even have to look it up. <laughs> even look just it up. because yeah. your feelings think you're right, you say, oh, but you're wrong. I'm 100% right. And I sent him so many links and articles, so I got, you know, I didn't have a great moment, and I, I, got, I went into it with him. But it really pissed me off, man. <laughs> I did my research, and I threw even more statistics. I was like, according to this statistic from National Geographic, up to 6 to 7% of the shark population is killed off every year, so it's being more decreased and declined. He's like, also, well, one more thing, I'll stop this rant. Yeah, he's, like, he's like, there's no way that sharks are being killed off that fast. They'd be extinct. I'm like, they are going ex- extinct. Every year, more and more get killed. What a photo. Oh my gosh. Alright, I digress. I'm yeah. cooling off now. Is this a, uh, a ranting podcast Woo-hoo. now? Alright, I'm done. <laughs> I, have, I have a funny hater, and it's a real hater, is on the Brendan Fraser video I posted and I and talking about that Brett he's gonna be in Scorsese's new movie. The King Fraser is yeah. back. And I, I called Scorsese and DiCaprio an icon, iconic duo. And Rackwolf eight zero said calling Scorsese and DiCaprio iconic is pretty generous. And I was pretty like, generous? Yeah. Like these are two of the most iconic directors. What's another actors. what's another more iconic duo in film it's history? Hard, it's hard to point out one. I mean I don't even know who I'd pick. How do you? How how is how are they not an iconic duo? Like they've made six Best Picture nominees. I guess maybe Scorsese and De Niro, but it's pretty comparable. Yeah, they've made a lot of films together. Each I probably De Niro's done more more. De Niro's did season, but still like. Uh, that's pretty wild. Yeah. I was like, that's the most ridiculous one I ever heard. That's a pretty bad comment. And this is a fun one. So Hayden Polkinghorne, a big fan of ours, he's always tuning into this show, said, it honestly amazes me how much you blokes have turned this channel into what it is now. From watching your earlier videos to what you produce now is unreal. From content and even the editing is a massive step up. How could anyone unsubscribe? My heart. Keep it up, you guys. Appreciate it, pal. Thanks, Hayden. All right. Biggest supporter of the week is from Nick Ewes. Left a review. Best podcast ever. These guys are the best and have helped bring my love for movies to a whole new level. They point out things that most people don't ever see or notice and have the best recommendations for movies. One of the most engaging podcasts I've ever listened to and can't wait to see where this podcast takes these guys in the future and look forward to seeing their own personal movies in theaters one day in the future. Thank you so much, pal. Appreciate it so much. On this day in film history, today is August 23rd. Gene Kelly... Vera Miles and River Phoenix were born. Movie releases on this day, Snatch in 2000. And then 2013, four great movies came out, Kings of Summer, The World's End, Blue Jasmine, and Short Term 12. My streaming recommendation for this episode 
is The Last King of Scotland, Ooh, which nice. is on Amazon Prime, stars Forrest Whitaker and James McAvoy. It is a great drama. Mine is on Amazon Prime. It's Ron, which is an Akira Kurosawa samurai film, which is really great. It's epic. It's got great action sequences. And he also did some amazing things with the color palette in the film that uh, really were really stunning. And I recommend if you like old movies like that, you got to check it out. All right, let's get back into The Last Samurai. Let's so, go. At this point in the film... What's happening? Algren, you know, he's been embracing this culture and falling in love with the, the way of the samurai and the way they live their lives. And again, their discipline and their honor, which was, you know, a forgotten word that they talk about in the opening of the film. And unfortunately, he has to leave because the snow has melted. The rivers have thawed out. The birds are chirping. And, <laughs> and now they can travel. And since he's been a POW, they're going to return him back to Tokyo. And now that he returns and he and he sees Bagley and he sees the that, first of all, the army is much better trained. They seem very elite in their abilities. And they have new artillery, including the, the first machine gun, which can fire 200 rounds per minute, which is a big deal back then when all we had are... All they had were um, rifles that fired one shot at a time. So this is a huge step up in terms of warfare. But also, you can tell immediately that once he's around these men, he feels so out of place. And he you can see that he resents this world. And it's like he, he he's like a different person now. And the idea of war is something that he wants to reject. Well, not the idea of war, but I think it's the way of life Sorry, yeah, of that yeah. he was pursuing because the samurai way of life is of the warrior. Also, another really telling scene about his departure from the village is right before he leaves, he has to go, he goes and finds Taka, who is um, bathing by one of the little waterfalls, and it's a very emotional moment for the both of them because they had been beginning to grow in their relationship and maybe build feelings for one another. And she started to realize, you know, my again, the the way of the samurai and that code. It's so interesting the respect they have for one another, and she has accepted the fact that. He did his duty, and her husband did his, his duty as well. And she's basically squashed any hard feelings she had about it because the <laughs> the, the beef is squashed. I, I squashed it. Squashed it years ago. So now now they're now they're on good terms, really. And now, you know, she's sad that she's losing this other man that she had been growing feelings for. And he has he has a father figure esque quality, especially towards the children. Exactly, and and the son especially. Uh, is, he doesn't want to see him go, and that's why he's so upset. And and that piece of paper, and he he draws the the calligraphy icon on it. And the, they don't tell you in the movie what what that symbol means, but it actually means samurai. So that's what the boy drew drew for uh, Algren is t- telling him that he's a samurai. And also the other samurai have just grown beautiful relationships with them as well, and they've accepted him. They call him. Um, they have a fantasy football league. <laughs> <laughs> they call him Algren's son instead of Algren or instead of Nathan. So they've they've kind of just accepted him into their community. And it, it seems so short-lived because you wish we could see another hour of him being in this village and training with them and everything. You don't and, want him to leave. And learning the way of life, but he has to go. And it, again, it feels short-lived and unfair that he has to go. But as he's there, Katsumoto goes with him. And then Katsumoto, he meets with the emperor but Amura's there, and so aren't the other delegates and advisors of the emperor. And basically, Katsumoto tries to communicate with the emperor and to say that my sword is his, and I'll do what he says. And because he is loyal to the emperor, 
and the emperor refuses him in his services, he becomes a prisoner of the Japanese government. And filled with shame. And they even, in the room he's being held in, uh, they give him a small knife to end his own life. And it's a moment where you know you think it, it, Katsumoto will actually do this sometime that night. But at the same time, there's an assassination attempt on Algren because Algren meets with the Masora, who Amora, I'm sorry, who meets with Amora, and Amora is like hinting and kind of understands the transformation that Algren's gone under because he refuses the whiskey. Then he says that line to him where he's like, "The samurai is an appealing way of life, isn't it?" And then Algren's trying to play dumb. He's trying to play like I'm still loyal to you and to the U.S. Army, and I'm just gonna take my money and go home. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. But then the assassination attempt on his life really shows. Algren that I am part samurai now and that is my new community. I just saved myself basically using the samurai code and, and techniques and in martial and in combat methods to fight seven guys and or five or six guys and take them on by myself. Yeah, the assassination attempt is amazing. It's such a great fight scene. And what's really cool about it is first of all, it's an epic moment, the sequence where Algren takes out these five men who are well trained themselves. So with just the sword play and Great, great action sequence. But then there's this moment where once he's killed four of them and there's still one left, Algren, in his mind, he recounts the fight in, in, as though it was recorded by him. And this shows an example of how his fighting has changed and he's like how he, earlier he couldn't fight as well as the others because he had too many mind. He was too focused on other things. And so this is an example of visual representation of how focused he's become on the craft of warfare and, and his fighting. And I think it's a really well done visual style right here. And then he goes and saves Katsumoto with, with the help the others, of Uyo yeah. and Katsumoto's son as well. And this is an epic scene as well because they're escaping against, they're fighting against uh Guns. I, I don't know. I couldn't think of the word guns. guns. <laughs> Rifles. <laughs> it's also very emotional because Katsumoto's son dies in this situation. But it, again, his death is glorious in a way. And it's glorious in the code of the samurai where he has taken down many foe during this battle. And even though in now he knows he's fatally wounded, he knows it's his time. And this is something beautiful about the samurai culture where... They're not afraid of death. They embrace death because it's a part of their spirituality and it's part of their life. And they hope to all have good deaths. And to him, to Katsumoto's son, to Katsumoto, they both know that this is going to be a good death. I'm going to die protecting my father and protecting my friends and fellow samurai and letting them get away so that I can buy them some more time. Yeah, it's a really tragic scene. And, and Ken Watanabe gives a great performance when he has to, you know, look upon his son for the last time. And it's really tragic. Yeah. Really and, great. But it's awesome because Algren... Let's go. They go back to the village, but now it's different. They're not there to bide their time and train and wait. They're there to plan an attack. They're going to attack the emperor and their forces. And so they spend a, probably a few weeks preparing for this battle. And this is where Nathan comes in handy because he knows the art of warfare in terms of the Western style of warfare. And so this is what helps them strategize to help them put up a fight against this army. Yeah, he's a military advisor. This is what he's born. This is what he's been grown to do his entire life. He's he's he knows war better than anybody. So he's basically Katsumoto's main advisor for the battle plan and battle schemes. And Taka's son, he doesn't want to lose another father figure. And Nathan, he thinks that the son is upset because. Her, he's still upset about his father being dead. But Taka tries to tell him that later on that. 
it's because he doesn't want to lose you. He doesn't want you to die because you've become a father to him in a way. And it's really beautiful, the relationship they all start to develop with each other at this point. And again, it seems short-lived because he's about to go to war and probably going to die. Yeah, and then when he steps out in that red battle armor and Ujo goes up to him and you think Ujo is going to be upset with him for wearing the samurai honor, but then he he grabs the, the chest plate and, and tests to make sure it's secure and then he nods. And, you know, this is like the final nod, nod of acceptance for Nathan to show that he is a samurai. He is one of them. He's earned his place there, and they consider him a brother. And I think the scene where you brought up earlier where Taka offers the red armor to Nathan then dresses him with him, but what she says is, if you wear this ar armor, you will honor our family. And so even though he killed her husband who was wearing that red armor, by wearing that red armor, he does a great service to their family. It's a great, great movie. It's really, I've, I've the Samurai Code is yeah, beautiful. It's, awesome. it's incredible. The amount of respect and honor that they have for even their enemies is just incredible. And, and the finale at battle is just all kinds of epic, and there's so many steps to it. And it's a story in its own. But first of all, the scale of it, the, the costuming and the wardrobe of this movie are really incredible. They they did a fantastic job costuming this film. And then the stunts are amazing. We got so many you got horseback riding, you got you got sword fighting, you have spear throwing, you, you tons have, of fire you arrows and, and fire yet. So it's it's a gigantic set piece. And the filmmakers did an astounding job bringing it to life. But before we talk more about this battle, why don't you tell us about some movie poster stuff, man? You mean uh, movieposters.com? Yeah, that, that cool website. The best place to get your posters online today. Use our special promo code. This is a new promo code, guys, guys and gals. Stop sharing it online. Yeah. <laughs> Raiders 15 off. So it's not Raiders 15 anymore. It's Raiders 15 off. Now, if you use that at movieposters.com, it'll get you 15% off your order. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, pretty much every movie you can think of. Movieposters.com has it. If you're a fan of movies, if you're a fan of film and TV, there's no better way to express that love, bud, than by decorating your place with a ton of posters from movieposters.com. Again, use our promo code RAIDERS15OFF to get 15% off your order today. And the biggest weakness of Amora and Bagley and the Imperial Army is because the samurai, they perceive the samurai as savages because they don't have modern technology. They don't have guns. They don't have machine guns. They don't. They have bows and arrows and swords. They make fun of them about it. And they think that they're going to be able to crush them no matter what. But what they misunderstand and what Algren, Algren understood this immediately when he got to Japan and was learning about the samurai through those books is the samurai sole occupation for 2,000 years has been war. This is what they have raised, lived their entire lives for, these moments, these battles. And because, again, the, the Imperial Army has the superior technology and weaponry, Algren's clever plan is to lure them in, lure as many of their soldiers in as possible to get them hand-to-hand -hand combat so that they can pull the swords out. So they make it seem like they're retreating, but then, and then Omura has Bagley send all of their forces out, which is uh, exactly what Algren and Katsumoto want so that they can fight them hand-to-hand -hand with swords. And then it's a bloodbath. There's that beautiful shot. It's amazing. It's a wide shot of this entire field. So many extras, hand-to-hand -hand sword fight, Rifle combat, it's yeah. crazy, and they're really like it's 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 they're really going at it. Yeah, and there's so many. It's hard to pull that kind of sequence off with with stunt people because you know you don't want anyone to get hurt. 
but it also needs to look like it's people are really fighting. So it's a really complicated stunt to perform. And I think people underestimate the the difficulty in pulling it off to make it look like people are actually fighting. But they did an amazing job with this. And not just make it look like fighting, but also look like improvised fighting and yeah. look random. Like, oh, this guy's right here. I'm going to attack him. So I think they did a, a wonderful job with the blocking and, and all the fluid... Uh, uh, movements of the fighting and the choreographing it's all it's all really good yeah and then when they take out that initial attack after the the fake retreat and they they get that small victory it's like you're pumped up you're like oh they might have a chance here bag is like he thinks he, he can, can win, win. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately obviously the the superior firepower is what is defeats the the samurai army and this like i said earlier this is historically historically accurate this really happened this kind of a battle happened and the samurai really did charge at heavy artillery and died to the last man. So this is not something that is just uh, glorified for Hollywood to, to make a nice movie scene. This really happened. And this shows the the dedication and, you know, the culture of the samurai where uh, they will fight to the last breath, to the last man, because they believe in what they're fighting for. Whereas the other army, they're, do, they're following orders. But the samurai, they don't fear death and they embrace the idea of fighting an unbeatable enemy because they know that what they fight for means something. Yeah, the machine gun taking out the samurai at the end of the film is a perfect metaphor for the new Western culture taking over Tokyo and Japan and extinguishing the traditional Japanese culture that Katsumoto is trying to hold on to. And like I said earlier, Katsumoto, he knows they're going to lose. They know it's a futile mission. They know they're going to be defeated. Algren knows that you can never defeat a more modernized army. And also he asked what happened to the warriors at Thermopylae, and Algren says, dead to the last man. Yeah, but and so and then he smiles at that. Like, he knows we're all going to die, but it's they're, they're going to go anyways. The whole, But the whole point of this rebellion is not to win. It's not, I mean, maybe they win and it'd be cool, but it's not to win. That's not the point of Katsumoto and his, and his goals. Again, his goal and his mission with this rebellion and this attack is to make an impact on the emperor to not forget the old ways. Katsumoto willingly dies just for the chance for the emperor to understand what he died for. And it's a really beautiful death where Katsumoto, he takes his own life with the help of Nathan. And then he, when he looks off into the distance, he sees the perfect cherry blossom. And it's something he said he's been seeking his entire life. And he has that final line where he says, perfect. And I think it was a really stunning moment for the movie. And then when Katsumoto dies, all of the Imperial soldiers, they get on their hands and knees and they bow to Katsumoto. It's a really beautiful moment because you can tell, I'm sure the citizens all know who the samurai are. Many of them, I'm sure, still respect them and revere them. But it's really interesting earlier on in the film when the samurai visit Tokyo and everyone is screaming in fear of, of the samurai, which I'm sure was a result of propaganda run by the imperial Japanese government there, which caused them to think that the samurai are just going to kill us all no matter what. But really, the samurai are very respectful people and they all understand that and they, they recognize that this is a passing of not just a great man in Katsumoto, but of the end of a people and tradition in Japan. And this actually is accurate as well to the samurai who inspired Takamori. Uh, even though he died in the battlefield from this heavy artillery, he was still regarded as a hero by the Chinese people, by, by the Japanese people. And one of the final scenes is Algren survives and he goes to the emperor who's about to sign that treaty which will completely westernize Japanese culture 
with the American em- ambassador. And it seems like America has kind of taken advantage of yeah, Japan for sure. from what you can tell. Yeah, and because of Algren's words and bringing Katsumoto's sword to the emperor, the emperor decides to cancel the treaty last minute. And it's a really beautiful shot in dialogue where the emperor asks Algren to tell him how Katsumoto died, but Algren responds saying, I'll tell you how he lived. And he's going to try to keep that traditional Japanese culture, which he loves so much, alive in Japan. And again, it's not about who wins. And then Nathan returns home, his new home, the village. So touching. I love this Taka. Oh, man. I love it so much. I love how he's just walking his horse with a sword sticking out. It's pretty badass. (laughs) I want a sequel where he's protecting the village from from soldiers or something. Yeah, let's get a sequel. That'd be pretty epic. 20 years later. And that's the end of The Last Samurai. And this is such a sensational film. We love period pieces. We love ancient history, even though this is 1800s, The Samurai or Ancient Warriors. Love other cultures. It's it's such a fascinating story. Amazing characters. Again, Beautiful music from Hans Zimmer. This is a perfect movie. And I think that this movie does the same thing that Dances with Wolves does, where it shows you this new, this different culture, but the beauty of it and how incredible uh, other uh, other people live around the world. And I think that's something that everyone should embrace and, and try to expose themselves to in some regard, whether it be music or or a movie or you know art, just or reading something, just embracing other cultures. And I think this movie did uh, an amazing job of that. You want to do some fun facts about The Last Samurai? I got some. Let's go. All right. You can go first. Since you seem so excited and eager to do it. <laughs> I have some. Give me like a few minutes to pull them up. So, Tom, well, I needed to scroll down my screen. Okay? Give me a, it was two seconds. <laughs> this is a long two Are seconds. Are you going to get a TikTok ac- argument with me? Uh, probably. If you leave two a com- million scrolls. If you leave a comment. <laughs> it was actually me. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Cruise actually almost died on set of this movie. He narrowly escaped uh, potentially fatal injuries after a sword was swung within one inch of his neck while filming. He and co-star Hiroki Sanada were acting out a sword fight scene in when the incident happened. Now, what happened was Sanada is supposed to swing a sword at Tom Cruise, who was off camera on a mechanical horse. But the mechanical horse malfunctioned and failed to duck and lower Tom Cruise in that moment while Sanada was swinging the sword. Luckily, Sonata is actually a highly trained martial artist, not just an actor. He was able to stop the blade within just one inch from Tom Cruise's neck. It's pretty wild. Tom Cruise also took no upfront salary for this movie. Filming of The Last Samurai took place in New Zealand, mostly in the Taranaki <clears throat> excuse me, mostly in the Taranaki region, with Japanese cast members and an American production crew. This location was chosen due to the fact that Mount Egmont, Mount Taranaka resembles Mount Fuji, and also because there is a lot of forest and farmland in the Taranaki region. This acted as a backdrop for many scenes, as opposed to the built-up cities of Japan. Several of the village scenes were shot on the Warner Brothers back lot in Burbank, California, which is just two minutes away from our house. Some scenes were shot in Kyoto and Himeji, Himeji, Japan. There were 13 locations altogether. The final battle in this film is based around the historical end of the Satsuma Rebellion at the Shiroyama on September 24th, 1877. And the Satsuma Rebellion is what inspired the movie itself. And like the film, the Imperial Army bombarded the samurai positions with heavy artillery. And Takamori, who was essentially Katsumoto in this movie, having run out of their own ammunition, charged the Imperial lines with 500 of their men, relying only on their swords. 
For a while, the samurai did hold up against the Imperial infantry, who were not trained for close combat sword fighting. However, during this time, Takamori was shot and severely wounded. There's the debate to what led to his death, but people assume that he did kill himself, just like in this movie. But also, what is known is that after he did die, uh, Takamori's men cut off his head and hid it to preserve his honor. The, late, the head was later found and buried with Takamori's body. What were left of his men was 40 people who were led by a samurai named Beppu. They did a final charge towards the Imperial lines and were wiped out by gunfire. That's wild. Yeah. Ted Williams' head was also taken. Cut off, yeah, by this family. <laughs> Critical reception in Japan was generally positive. Tomomi Katsuta of the Mianchini Shinbun thought this movie was a vast improvement over previous American attempts to portray Japan, noting that producer and director Edward Zwick had researched Japanese history, cast well-known Japanese actors, and consulted dialogue coaches to make sure he didn't confuse the casual and formal categories of Japanese speech. However, Katsuta still found fault with the movie's idealistic storybook portrayal of the samurai, stating, Our image of samurai is that they were more corrupt. As such, he said the noble samurai leader, Katsumoto, set his teeth on edge. You got any more? That's it. That's all I got. Yeah, I mean, there's some more, but, you know. We'll leave it at that. This is this is a, such a fun episode to do. I love, love this movie. movie. Jinx. Jinx. <laughs> Jinx. Again. All right, thanks so much for tuning in, everybody around the world. Make sure to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcast. When we hit 300, James will quit his job. Woo! So thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Hope you have a great rest of your week. Take care, everyone. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.